Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rula interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. We're going to be talking about Amstel Gold Race today, and then Dan Cavallari is going to catch up with Amy Evans, Gore's product specialist and merchandiser, to talk about clothing for endurance cycling. But I'm joined by James Start, Ruler's photojournalist, who, just like Amstel Gold Race, is not in the Ardennes. However, by the time this podcast is out, you'll be somewhere around the Mur de Huy, right, James? Yeah, I'm going over to see a certain Tadi Pogajar tomorrow for the magazine. And then I'm going to spend a day on the Mur de Huy, which is uh, just, a, I love the Mur, I love the flesh. I love the Mur de Huy. It's like a block party down there. You know, it's just people hanging out on the climb all day long, eating frites, drinking beer, and watching great bike racing. I mean, what more do you want? And uh, do send our regards to Tade Pogacar and maybe just encourage him to go easy on his rivals a little bit. <laughs> in the women's race in Amstel Gold, there was yet another SD Works 1-2 as Demi Vollering attacked the lead group inside the final two kilometres and won solo ahead of teammate Lotte Kopecky. Uh, Kopecky headed the sprint for second. And in the men's race, Tade Pogacar got into a mid-race break came back from a mechanical, attacked the group, and initially found himself off the front with Tom Pidcock and Ben Healy, EF, easy post. Then he dropped them both about 30 kilometres to go. Pogacar won alone, Healy second, and a tiring Pidcock third, just ahead of a small group. So, James, Amstel Gold, another victory parade by Tade Pogacar. He's just rewriting the rules, isn't he? It just seems to be when he decides to go, he goes. And it's really hard for anybody to hang with them outside of, say, on the Poggio at Milan San Remo, where you got some very, very big motors who have to hold on to his wheel for, what, a kilometer or so? More than that. Other than that, it's pretty much when he goes, he goes. And, and that is why I've said before, and I say it again, he is really Merckx-like. I mean, that is the way Eddie used to do it. Some of the greats in the past where he would do that, but very few. Kopi, Fausto Kopi was known for that, just going off in these long solo breaks. This is modern bicycle racing. It doesn't happen like that. It hasn't happened like that in 30 years. And he just goes. He just goes. And it's pretty much game over. And he showed it again at Amstel. You know, it was a hard race. And he had a lot of difficulty with mechanicals. The weather wasn't great, this and that. But when he went, 
game over. Well, this is why I keep saying he's rewriting the rules. It's becoming a cliche, as is the Merckx comparison. But you know, he was 38 seconds clear of Healy, two and a quarter minutes ahead of Pidcock and the, the next group were on the same time. Three minutes, 14 to the next group. He just wins by miles, doesn't he? He just breaks the race up and puts a lot of time into everybody. It's really amazing to see. It is interesting to see that Jonas Vingegaard is, is kind of doing the same thing in his own races. He's slaughtered everybody in Basque. But, you know, it's not the same level of racing. I mean, these are the biggest races in the world. This is Flanders. This is Amstel. These are 250-kilometer races that are hard and brutal. And to have that kind of reserve and that kind of power and to be able to put that and just to do what you want to people at that point in the racing is... I've never seen it before. That's all I can say. I've been in the game for a long time. I've never seen that before. Not so consistently with such facility. So 2023, James, uh, I'm going to try not to make your eyes glaze over while I run some numbers past you. So Pogacar's won 11 times in 17 days racing and 19 chances because there's a couple of GCs in there. He's won the Classico Jaén down in Spain. He won three stages in the GC of Ruta del Sol three stages in the GC of Paris-Nice, and he's won Tour of Flanders and Amstel Gold. And he's also fourth in Milan San Remo and third in E3 Police along the way. And the funny thing is, I haven't yet got bored of him, even though he's winning virtually everything he's doing. I haven't got bored of him yet. I'm really looking forward to sitting down and talking to him because, you know, we don't still don't quite know what makes him tick. And I really want to hopefully come away with a little bit more of a sense of that but obviously bike racing for him is fun it's such a game and he's like he goes into every race to play a game and to win that game and most of the times he does and if he doesn't the two races where he said he lost was basically because the course and the race itself was just not hard enough he's not going to win a sprint stage in the tour because you can't drop everybody it took all kinds of digs in the poggio but the poggio is the poggio and it's just it's not a long hard climb and Vanderpool, I mean, okay, maybe he'll come back and learn and time it better. But he didn't lose because he was any weaker than Vanderpool. You know, he just lost because he couldn't drop everybody like he does most of the time. Now, there's one glimmer of hope for those who are fans of unpredictability. And that's what I was thinking towards the end of that escape yesterday. Pogacar was just starting to look ever so slightly ragged around the edges. And Healy was closing quite well and what that made me think is that while you'd be mad to write off Pogacar I'm wondering just how long he can sustain this kind of form effort and winning streak can we really envisage him being even better in July well that's kind of the big question I was watching it a bit on French television they were asking similar questions is he blowing everything now is he going to have anything less left in the in the tour or is this whole spring campaign kind of like an extended version of his first uh, 10 days at the tour. And then is he going to show up to the tour tired? Well, let's hope he's learned some lessons from that last year. But let's hope that he's learned some lessons. He's many things, and what, but he's not stupid. And he has a good team behind him. He has a good structure behind him. And I think they're going to go into this tour in a different mindset than they did last year. And I think you're going to see him taking a rest period here very shortly. And I don't know what his schedule is, but don't be surprised not to see him much before the tour because he needs to he needs to go into that tour fresh. I remember last year, he didn't even do the Dauphiné Tour of Swiss because they felt like he was kind of ahead of schedule. So they put him in a Tour of Slovenia or just a smaller race where he could 
you know, spin his legs a bit, get the rhythm there, but not dig too deep, not have to force his condition to come around too early. And don't be to see him sort of modulating that now, but traditional standards, digging deep in April on single day races, you've got time to recover for the tour. The Tour Slovenia is a good option because it prevents him from falling to the temptation of trying to win too many stages of the Dauphiné and overdoing it. So maybe we'll see that pattern again. There's just one more complication from yesterday's race. We're talking on Monday here. My gut says that Pogacar would have won anyway, but the race director's car did give a little inadvertent helping hand at a crucial point in the race, just as Healy was starting to close that gap a little. I mean, I yeah, it's Tade Pogacar, and I'm sure that... Uh, Pogacar is, is, would be capable of probably rallying again to the finish and also probably out sprinting Healy if, if he had caught up. But I just think at that crucial point, you know, I'm not one to rail against race vehicles because I know it's not an easy job driving a race vehicle. They're necessary in most cases and there isn't a single rider in the world tour, you know, who's going to turn down the opportunity from slipstream a vehicle. But I thought this one was bad optics. Well, optics, I think, is important because I, I, I do have a little trouble judging just how far ahead he was. But, yeah, the car was dangling out there and you're going, what, the, what is going on? And you're right. I mean, I'm on a motorcycle photographing a lot. And I can tell you, I have yet to met a rider who, if they can't get into my slipstream, won't. OK, that's bike racing. You know that. Everybody knows that. We know that as, as motos. And, you know, like I was in Argentina on this little bitty moto, didn't have much power. One rider was just riding tempo and he just kept coming up on my wheel and I was just trying to photograph him and he just kept coming right into my wheel. I was like, come on, man, give me a break. I'm trying to explain in Spanish to this driver on a 125 to just keep a distance, but he can't get out of your way. It's not always that easy, but that is bike racing. I don't think that it really affected it. Although if I was EF, I sure would be upset. I certainly understand it. And you know, this is Amstel. I mean, this is not the first time, like it was two years ago, three years ago when uh, Vanderpool won. He was nowhere. I mean, there was no way that that group was catching Alaphilippe and Fuglesong. They were up the road by every time split we had. And all of a sudden, there they were in the last four, five, six hundred meters. And I know Petro Pofever complained publicly about it. But Amstel is kind of its, its own sort of beast, if you will. And I've always had my little trouble getting my head around it. Yeah, we've, I mean, we've talked about this in the context of the last few weeks racing as well with with crashes in Paris-Roubaix that bike racing is a complex sport and there is kind of overlap between the real world and the bike race in a way that you don't get in in other sports and those race vehicles are there's so much part of the territory that it's almost impossible to actually draw up black and white rules that satisfactorily deal with having there but I think people will reflect on this race as probably in the long term as another chapter in Tade Pogacar's story rather than thinking he was given the race by drafting a race car and same but different from the men's race in the women's peloton because SD works are dominating at the moment it's the fourth time they've achieved a one-two in a major one-day race this spring and I think Vollering and Kopecky who have first second seem to have found a little more harmony than they did in Strada Bianchi but they're dominating so many races there seem to be enough wins to go around for them and I presume Vollering will now be the favourite for Fleshwallone which will be in the past by the time this podcast comes out so we can test the veracity of that prediction and Liège best on Liège. Yeah I can't wait to get to those. Amstel for me has just always been a uh, sort of I, can't, I just can't get my head around that race. For one where are the crowds? They were like three people 
on most of the climbs. I mean, even when Toddy makes his big move, that there weren't a lot of people out there. We're coming off of Flanders and Roubaix and Genfeldwegem, where cycling is this communion between the cyclists and the public. And then you get to Amstel, and you're like, so let's take a Sunday drive in the country kind of thing. It's always been a race that's been very anticlimactic for me. And I have only done it once or twice, and I was just like, it doesn't really speak to me from a spectator's perspective, or it doesn't have the same amount of history and soul as these other races have. And that's that's it. I can't say it. I don't mean to be mean to anybody. I don't mean to be mean to the Dutch. I don't mean to be mean to anybody who's won that race, because great riders win that race, as we just saw once again. But when I look at the race and I look at the stage that it presents, it just is lacking to me. The UCI did a great thing by putting it in front of Flesh and Liege because before it always came dangled afterwards and nobody cared about it. I mean, it just didn't really didn't get a lot of commotion. Now they put it here and it's sort of the buildup for the final weekend in the Ardennes. So it has a new sense of purpose, which is just tremendous. But still, I mean, we're going to see a lot more people on the Mur de Huy than we did in, in Amstel. And a lot more people on the Redoute and all of the class, the big, great climbs of Liege. And those races are just another level. That's all there is to it. So race director Leo Van Vliet's going to be almost as angry when he listens to this as he was at the accusations of having drafted Tadej Pogacar to victory. But here's the thing, James. When we had a chat about this podcast before recording, I've been egging you on. But I actually quite like Amstel Gold Race. And Explain. I don't condone Amstel beer, <laughs> exactly. uh, first of all. So I'm not on board at all with the sponsor's product. Although in terms of sponsorship longevity... They must have wrung out every possible bit of visibility and exposure from it. And they must love sponsoring the race. So thank you for the untold millions of euros probably that they've put into this race. But I think I just find it interesting because I can't quite work it out. It's I think it's underestimated just how tough and complicated the race is. It's not as hard in terms of climbing as Liège, for example. The, the climbs in Liège are proper climbs. When you ride up them, you... You slow down and you stay slowed down for a long time. You can't punch over the Liège climbs. They are long climbs. Whereas Amstel kind of just straddles that distance between long and short. I just find the the route map enigmatic. Uh, I can't make head or tail of it and it's incredibly complex. But I always just assume that means that it's a complex race that's going to be really hard to master. You don't get 50k of straight road in Amstel Gold. You get... you know. 500 metres at best. And I find the winner's list quite a varied and interesting one as well. As you said, you get great riders winning it. And it's not necessarily the great riders who always win other races as well. It's just got quite an interesting winner's list. Like Kwiatkowski has won it a couple of times. There was the Van der Poel win a few years ago, which was spectacular. Pogacar this year. So it's, it's an interesting winner's list. Lastly, I used to be really down on it. When the finish was at the top of the Coburg... And every year there would be an escape, but the bunch would be together at the bottom of the Coburg and then the best uphill sprinter would win at the top. I just found it really tedious. I used to not really watch much of it, just watch the sprint up the Coburg. It wasn't that excited, but I think that the new finish, which is about 1,500 metres of horrible, draggy, gently rising, gently falling road exposed to the wind to the finish, it's quite a nice finish. So I'm not as down on it as you James? Well, I will agree that the race route itself is indecipherable. If you don't come from that region, you don't know where you're at. And, and I have a very distinct 
memory of covering it for the first time it's just sort of getting lost in some tulip field somewhere i did not know where i was i couldn't even like find them i didn't know if i was on the race route anymore i didn't know if i could find it again because there's just not a lot of people out there you know and yet i do think that placing it here between the flemish classics and the real ardennes is perfect because it is a race that speaks to both kinds of riders. I mean, guys like Johan Muzio have also won this, right? So a Flanders-esque rider can win this race. A Tour de France-style rider can win this race. And Ardennes specialists can win this race. So it's a very open race. And, and so from a strictly sporting perspective, that's interesting. And and it has its place where it's at in the calendar. I, I will give it that. The new finish, we disagree. We disagree. I think great races deserve great finishes. And we're like, a kilometer from the finish and there's nobody along the barriers and that really bothers me. Great races deserve great starts and they deserve great finishes. I and mean, I've made the same critique, say with Flanders. I mean, like starting in downtown, the starts are, are good. They're like right down to the heart of Antwerp or uh, Bruges, especially Bruges, that's a spectacular start. But the finish outside of Oudenard is lacking to me. Just go the extra distance and finish in the heart of the town and get this great, wonderful welcome. Great races deserve that. And Roubaix's finish is, is so epic because of that. And the San Remo finish is so historical. And, and you don't think of San Remo for much else, but it being right down to the heart of that town for the finish is just great. And Amstel, is lacking. You might have a point about the race route. I mean, it is enigmatic and indecipherable. It's like going to a, a gallery and looking at modern art, isn't it? You're never quite sure whether it's deeply meaningful or whether it's completely random. So whether the race or race itself is great or not, we can't be in any doubt that it did have a great winner this year. So James, you're off to Flesh alone. I hope you have a great time there. Thank you for your time. Next up is Dan Cavallari, Amy Evans and Gore Clothing. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Rouleur 118, the classics issue. The classics are the beating heart of world cycling. These grippy, tough, atmospheric races in the chilly north of a European spring are full of character and excitement. Yes, the Tour de France is colourful and glamorous, but the classics are real life, a kitchen sink drama compared to the operatic grandeur of the Tour and Giro d'Italia. We're celebrating the classics in Rouleau 118. The magazine features an exclusive interview with Eritrean rider Binyam Germay. Germay is one of cycling's most prominent rising stars. He won Gent-Wevelgem and a stage in the Giro d'Italia last year, and he tells us he is aiming even higher this year. But results aside, as the most successful black African rider the sport has yet seen, Guillaume is smashing down barriers and paving the way for many more to follow. Also in Ruler 118, interviews with Movistar's new signing Leanne Lippert and Spanish classic stalwart Immanuel Erviti, who has ridden more editions of Paris-Roubaix and the Tour of Flanders than any other current pro. How do you win the Tour of Flanders? Seven different champions, including Lizzie Dignan, Tom Boonen and Johan Museo, tell us how they achieved victory in the Ronde. And we've taken a deep dive into Flemish cycling culture and visited the best cycling bars in Flanders. Rouleau 118 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to rouleau.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15 to get 15% off our regular subscription price. 
And now, back to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari, and normally I am joining you from Colorado, where it is blustery and cold, uh, but we're not in a place that is blustery and cold. We're in a place that is lovely. In fact, it was almost hard to convince myself to do this instead of listening to the, the wind rustling through the palm trees outside my door right now. But we're going to do it anyway. We're going to do some work <laughs> because we rode our bikes all day and it's been lovely. I am here today testing some new kit from Goreware. And uh, if you are asking me about that name and wondering about that name, it has changed recently. It was Gore Bikeware. It has changed to Goreware to be more all-encompassing of uh, the clothing that they make for running and cycling. So. We're here testing the new kit from Gore, which doesn't sound all that remarkable when you think about it. It's uh, just chamois and, and jersey. Well, uh, you know, you learn more about how, what goes into making the clothing we wear as cyclists, and all of a sudden it becomes quite a lot more fascinating because your comfort is so dependent upon the design that goes into that. So I went all the way to the top to the person who designed the kit that we worked on, that we rode on today. I have with me today Amy Evans, who is a product specialist and merchandising expert, a merchandiser, a merchandiser. <laughs> uh, and you, uh, Amy, you worked on the Jersey more specifically, but you were on a team that developed the whole kit, the Gore distance 2.0. Correct. Yeah. And uh, so, and that's what we were wearing today. And one of the things that we often overlook in terms of spending our money as cyclists is probably the most important thing, which is the clothing, because that'll dictate how effective you are on the bike and how comfortable you are on the bike. So the distance collection is obviously for endurance, for longer rides, and in your presentation, you know, nobody can see this, but you did the rubbing, <laughs> the rubbing motion on your legs. Tell me a little bit about that and launch from there how the design of the kit went. Definitely. So for those that don't know Goreware, kind of our tagline is endurance is our comfort zone. You know, we know for, for people that are cycling or running, and you consider yourself a daily climber, someone that just, you almost back up your, your week from my long ride is Sunday, which means I'm going to do a middle ride Saturday, which means on Friday I need to go to bed at this time, which means Thursday I'm going to do this. You kind of build your entire life around cycling or running. And if you do endurance, there's no off days. Right. So when it comes to our rain protection, water protection, et cetera, we have everything that you need because... No is not an answer, right? There's no such thing as bad weather, right? We all know this. <laughs> it's it's just you. bad kit. It says yeah, you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when we were looking at the distance kit and knowing endurance is our comfort zone, the other filter we have is what problems are we trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And as we know, the longer you're riding on a bike, the more problems you can have. Mm -hmm. So when it came to looking at the bibs, you might be familiar with the distance bib 1.0 that we had, mm -hmm. the long distance bib. And that's where the, uh, as you guys cannot see, but the motion of rubbing the thighs, mm -hmm. it's truly a fabric miracle that we have <laughs> used the past few years. And we wanted to upgrade the bib to solve the problems that we might not have been solving in the first iteration. But we did keep the material because it is such a nice fine, densely knit uh, material that just kind of hugs the legs. It stays in place. It feels like a second skin. Mm -hmm. And it's just unbelievably comfortable. You can't really stop like touching it. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it's great. Uh, so we wanted to lead with that as far as the material selection. But then we looked at some of the other opportunities from the 1.0 distance bib 
to updating to the 2.0 that just launched a couple days ago. So we looked at our chamois. You know, that is the connector between you and the saddle, and you're in there for a long time. So we we did update that a little bit from the previous version to build in comfort for sure, uh, lasting comfort, a little bit more dense foam. Um, right under the sit bones, but also leading a little bit forward. So whether you sit more upright or more arrow position, you do have that tilt um, for the sit bones that are going to be supported. Mm -hmm. So that was a little bit of a change there. We reduced the seams 50%, one for comfort, so 50% less chafing, but also for breakage. You know, longevity is really a big key when it comes to endurance riding because one, you're sitting in the saddle for a long time, and two, you're using them a lot and you're washing them a lot. Uh, you're stretching them a lot. So the less seams means less breakage. So for longevity, that was a great addition that we had. And then finally, we updated the straps as well. Um, a lot of feedback from the straps before were that they roll, they're, they're comfortable until you sweat. And so they're super breathable, they're stable, they're strong. And altogether, that package really keeps the chamois in place. So between the straps and the interface with the, uh, the chamois itself to keep it so there's no movement. The fabric as it is, um, some of the gripper around the legs is updated as well for comfort and also not giving you the little squeeze effect. Mm -hmm. The sausage casing, the sausage, as you said. yes, uh, as much as we love that, uh, we don't. <laughs> so <laughs> noted on on that for the bib short. I would say if you want me to keep going into the the jersey, well, or... let's, let's yeah, let's pause there for a second because that's a lot to unpack just right that's there. Totally um, a lot. Yeah, and and I think. Let's take a step back to the material because I think that's a good launching point for what makes this bib different. And it is, you know, you say it's second skin comfort. It's like it disappears and it's true. What makes this material different than something like a, a Lycra that we're used to, which is really compressive, mm -hmm. whereas this doesn't feel like that way. It doesn't feel yeah. like it's really adding a lot of pressure to your leg. What was the thinking there in terms of, in, especially as it relates to endurance and riding for long periods of time? Definitely. So some of the bibs that you've maybe tried in the past, they, they feel nice and compressive or they give a lot of coverage. They're a little bit thicker. But once you start to sweat um, and once you start to move and stretch and actually once your legs swell a little bit, because as we know, after a little while in the saddle, you do have a little bit of leg swelling that's happening. Mm -hmm. You might notice that the material kind of loses its integrity. It starts to get wet. It doesn't moisture manage as well as it could or it doesn't evaporate, doesn't dry out. So you kind of get this kind of saggy effect and it defeats the whole purpose of having a thicker material with the coverage in the beginning. So we really invested, uh, I'm going to use that with a capital I, <laughs> in this material um, to have kind of that balance between a nice, thin, lightweight feel, that next uh, skin feel that is super comfortable, but then that second skin feel as well with that really fine but tight knit, tight gauge knit is mm -hmm. what we call it. So that would be the difference even though the material makeup might be the same as other brands and their and their um, fabrics that they choose it's how it's constructed uh, how it's knit is really where the magic is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you also mentioned something in, in the presentation earlier today that uh, people were complaining about how much salt builds up on there. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, is it the salt comment? yeah 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 tell <laughs> yeah. me tell me about that because I think that's interesting you know yeah. I've always been one to notice that too it's like wow I got salt that's yeah. built up on my sham or my 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 uh, shorts and 
you think of that as like a bad thing, but it's not. It's yeah, a good thing. you're like my black shorts just turned into like a gray tie dye. Yeah. Like, what is all this I'm salt? A salt lick for exactly. here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but if you think about what fabric is meant to do when it's next to skin, if you have a really good fabric, is it's supposed to pull away moisture and then let it go, yeah. let it evaporate. Now, salt is not going to just disappear into thin air. Sure. And for a lot of materials, the salt doesn't make it past that layer. So this material is doing a great job of pulling the sweat away. So when you see salt on the outside, that's actually a good thing. Mm -hmm. it, it's showing it's not next to your skin. It's not actually gonna be super itchy and uncomfortable mm -hmm. next to skin, it's on the outside layer. And also you're kind of showing off like how much endurance <laughs> you just put yeah. in, how much effort <laughs> and sweat you just put yeah, in. Yeah. So I shouldn't be sweating that much when I just like walk to the fridge. And, yeah, uh, I would say I, we yeah. probably don't show the salt okay. for that. That's weird. That's, then, then, I, then I have a weird problem. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's a different podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a different endurance problem. Yeah. Um, so the big advantage here to me seems to be the uh, the fit itself. I mean, I think I'm a big stickler about bib straps because uh, I, I've been testing bibs for a very long time. And, and there was a, a period of time where everyone was stitching their bibs and then, you know, their bib straps and then they had the mesh material between. Mm -hmm. And I hated it because it rolled up uh, and next thing you know, you're just, it's like a bra strap almost. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's not comfortable for anybody. So on the endurance, uh, excuse me, the distance bibs, it's distance, I keep, yes. uh, distance, distance. The distance. They are a pretty unique strap, but they also have a sort of a unique design on the back. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about that and what that does to keep the straps in place. Definitely, so you nailed it. There are so many executions, one over the years, like we've evolved, but there's, there's a lot out there. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a personal preference. So, you know, I would say most people will agree this material is top notch. The chamois is amazing. The straps, it is a preference, but we found with all of our testing, this was great for two reasons. One, it is one single piece. So it is an engineered mesh strap. It's fairly wide. So it, it really is stable. Um, there's a lot of integrity in the strength there. It won't roll up um, and it does stay in place. So that was kind of key number one, but we reduced all the seams everywhere else. We were like, why don't we engineer this to be one piece so there's not a seam right on your back or you know somewhere else that it might cause irritation. Um, so it doesn't crisscross in the back. It just kind of comes together into a more rectangular pattern and then it splits again in the back. Um, and we really worked with how high do you put that um, for men's and for women's so that you don't have it too close to the neck or too far away. You don't have wrinkling. So there was actually a lot that went into it. But when you look at it, you're like, oh, how beautifully simple. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. Does it, do, is that yoke position different for the men's bib and the women's bib? Is it yes. like higher for women or lower? Or? Yes. From the testing. Now to the naked eye holding it up, you might not notice it as much, but that was very important in our testing because bib straps for women is a whole different topic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of shapes and sizes up top that we have to deal with, um, whereas for men, it's more length that mm -hmm. you have a problem with yeah. uh, versus anything like that. So that was where we had to find that happy medium on the women's side of how high is high enough, how low is not, there's too low, you know, like yeah. really to, to figure it out with getting that splay that you need in the front. Mm -hmm. Uh, going back to the difference between men and women, the design, is the chamois the same between the men and the women? Or so is it is the same I would say the same ingredients uh -huh. or the same recipe, but we have all of our chamois. So we have three different levels of chamois for all of our bib shorts. This one, it is the same. It's our new chamois that we've updated from the, the previous. It's a different shape 
though, because women and men have different locations of their sit bones. Mm -hmm. And also there's a different channel in the middle uh, based on soft tissue. So we've really worked very close with Elastic Interface in Italy to find that perfect balance. And we've done a lot of testing with it mm -hmm. just based on anatomy. So the, the next question is, I almost got like rotten tomatoes thrown at me earlier when I asked this, but for people who are considering buying these bibs, um, not just for road use, but also for gravel use, mm -hmm. is there really a difference between a gravel bib and a road bib? And, and is the distance bib appropriate for riding gravel? Yeah. We'll start with the last one. Okay. It is appropriate, okay. um, I would say. You know, there are a few, <laughs> there's a few, there's infinite yeah. uh, things that happen in gravel riding, <laughs> right? Uh, so if you need more abrasion resistance because you're riding certain gravel that's really wet, you're gonna get it on your saddle and it's gonna eat through your material, you're probably gonna want something, maybe a stretch woven or something a little bit different, even wearing a short on top. If it's just regular dusty, dusty old gravel, uh, you know, these bibs will be great. I wear these for gravel riding. I wear our transition bib if I know it's gonna be a little bit wetter outside to have a little bit more abrasion resistance. Um, or if there's a chance I'm going to be wiping out a lot because, <laughs> again, this material is so nice, I don't want to tear it. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I'll use a, a stretch woven for that, which has a little bit more abrasion resistance to it. Mm -hmm. When it comes to chamois, yes, there are so many chamois out there. I have sat at a table of like 50 different chamois and there is a solution for every type of riding you can imagine. Um, so I think it's very valid that it's out there. I would also say that you don't have to have the most gravel specific chamois if you're happy with how you ride in this. So it, it's more of a trial and error mm -hmm. for sure. And then figuring out the conditions you're riding in. So generally speaking, I mean, the chamois position within the bib probably changes a little bit between a gravel and a road chamois, but not enough to really make it a live or die sort of situation. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. It's more about features and like, if you like the pockets, the cargo pockets. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because I think, you know, I think there, there's always this, this fight between, do I need gravel specific stuff? I mean, the answer is always no, you know, you <laughs> could do it. You could run what you got. Yeah. Um, but will it make your life better? And exactly. you know, you know your, your ride better. Uh, I mean, that's a different question. Yeah. Uh, is Gore planning on doing any gravel stuff? You know, I've heard a lot. So as we're really looking at the U.S. and, and how the U.S. differs from Europe, you know, we're a European company, Goreware is. And gravel riding is definitely huge out there. Road riding is supreme, yeah. I would say. Yeah. So we're, we're really getting our road cycling collection dialed in, doing all the learnings. You know, we've excelled in that. We're going to continue to work on that. We introduced a trail collection that's more mountain bike focused mm -hmm. last year in 2022. And so gravel is somewhere in between. And I, I do believe there's the opportunity. I think there's a million ways we can slice it. Mm -hmm. And how we want to do it is to be determined. But I do see that there is a white space there. The other interesting thing to me in the presentation earlier was something you brought up. I just recently interviewed Gary Fisher for another podcast that I do, uh, Slow Guy in the Fast Ride. Um, <laughs> and he is just starting his own business, uh, e-bike business. And his one of his central tenets is the right to repair which is a big deal in tech, you know, being able to repair the products that you buy, which equals to less waste, which equals better longevity for the product. And there's sort of an element to the bibs about that. Tell me a little bit about that. For sure. Yeah, we don't do repairs. We don't have a repair center per se, at least not yet. But one thing we can do is design our products to be repaired. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by that is these bib straps are too long. 
Can you take it to a tailor and have them shortened? Absolutely. Why? Because we made it a really easy to understand construction. Things go into our jackets. Uh, can you replace the zipper if it breaks? Absolutely. We didn't do a crazy zipper construction or placket. We made it so that you would be able to repair it with anyone that has basic sewing expertise. Mm -hmm. So design to be repaired is kind of our goal. You can have recycled all day, but if you have to toss it every year, we're not helping anything. Yeah. So how do you build for longevity with quality materials, but then also construction that can be easily repaired? Or to the bibs point, we reduce the seams by 50 percent because those are just breakage points yeah. you know it's it's going to happen it's a it's a thread holding things together mm -hmm. so also finding materials that will not you know that have a, a really low abrasion you know the, the abrasion uh qualities are off the charts yeah. with, with with our materials so making sure that alone it's not going to snag it's not going to rip you know we have a really great material to begin with and then we have less seams of breakage points mm -hmm. um, on top of the construction itself being easy to repair mm -hmm. going back a ways uh one of the narratives in the, the the bib arena in particular was that more panels was better because you could sculpt it around the body and we're seeing now that bibs are not using panels is that conventional wisdom true uh or has i mean has the textile changed so much that you can do it without having to have panels. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. You know, panels are also great, uh, not just for support, but also piecing in breathability elements. So you might have a panel that's a little bit more meshy or a little bit denser for abrasion in the sea area. You know, there, there's a lot of that. Also, in the past, a lot of the materials weren't that perfect four-way stretch. So you kind of had to place the pattern, not to get technical here, mm -hmm. on the fabric to make sure that you were getting the same amount of stretch for each of the panels as it curved around the body. Because remember, the body is a very uh, round, uh, <laughs> dynamic thing that, you know, trying to get a one flat piece of material around it in a comfortable way, there's a little bit of science to it. Yeah. The material that we're using is like the perfect four-way stretch. So you can actually just wrap it around your entire body and it'll fit like a gem, which yeah. is great. To your point, though, a lot of brands also, you know, there's different engineering techniques coming in that we didn't really see in the past. So you're able to engineer in one piece of fabric instead of just being one plain thing. You can engineer in bigger holes, breathability. Um, and you'll see that, especially at higher price points where, where that's happening. You can engineer in more strength for a little bit more support. You can even engineer in like silicone. So yeah. you're not applying it afterwards, which is a great longevity thing and also a comfort thing. So the the world of textiles, it's it blows my mind every day mm -hmm. how it how it keeps growing. But for this bib for this bib short in particular, the material is such a perfect four-way stretch that we were able to have it fit perfectly without putting extra panels in. Is this a proprietary material for gore? It actually is not. Oh, yeah. okay. It is not, right. but it is not widely used. It is incredibly soft. It's so uh, soft. It, it's distractingly soft. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like right. You just want to like rub it. <laughs> yeah. um, tell me a little bit about the jersey, and you helmed this part of the kit. <laughs> yes. Uh, tell me about it. Exactly. So going back the uh, the Distance 1.0 bib short that we had before, Fabulous. We updated it. And as we were planning this update, I kind of just raised the hand and said, I, I feel like we should have a jersey to go with this. And I was like, oh, we have plenty of jerseys. Do we need another jersey? Like, I was like, well, if everyone loves the fabric of the bib, so much, the bib short so much, I feel like we should try to find a similar fabric and have that same experience with the jersey. I think it's an opportunity. And so the, we were tasking uh, our amazing materials guy in Germany, and he was like, 
Ames, I think we got it. It's like, yes. <laughs> so we made some prototypes and we had that same, uh, you know, aha moment of like, yes, this is it. So not only do you have that amazing feel, it looks great. It looks great with the bib short. Um, it, it looks like they were made to be together. Mm -hmm. The technology and the design elements of the jersey, is it a simpler process than the bibs or is it also yeah. immensely complex? I will say honestly, because I've made footwear before, I still think apparel might be more complex uh, just in general. Yeah. Bib shorts are extremely complex because there's a, there's a lot of parts that go yeah. into it and one does influence the other. I will say though, jerseys, though they are simpler, you know, it's a zipper, it's fabric, some gripper and some pockets it is really easy to mess it up. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of areas that could be pain points. Like how many times has it been like, what's your favorite jersey? It's like, well, I like this one for the fit. I like this one for the material. I like the zipper on this one and the pockets on this one. It's like, cool, maybe we can put those all together and have the perfect jersey. <laughs> mm -hmm. So there's definitely um, that opportunity. So uh, I would say for this jersey, uh, again, the problem to solve, that was where I started was, okay, we one problem to solve is we need a jersey that matches these bib shorts perfectly, yeah. right? So that's that's part number one. Part number two, let's let's just start at the neck and and move down and see like what do people usually com complain about? Right. And so we had a panel of men and women and just threw it out there like, hey, what do you hate about your jerseys? <laughs> and we started there to try to fix the problems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And let's start with the neck then. So sure. one of the things about the jersey that you touted pretty early on was the cut of the collar in front. Exactly. Uh, tell me about that and how it differs from the cut in the back. Yeah, so with the distance jersey, the lens that we had was Imagine you're wearing this for a long ride. You know, this is not about aerodynamics necessarily. This is not about the fast. This is about a comfortable long ride. What drives you crazy? And the number one thing that came up is I hate necklines. Mm. They're either too tight. They're too loose. I have to leave it unzipped about three CMs, you know, down so that it's not cutting in. It's like, but that's the only normal that I have. Sometimes it continues to unzip and then I have a full, you know, just open jersey. So I was like, all right, neckline, that's a big one. So we, we threw this on a lot of bodies. We got them in the riding position. We were like, where would you unzip this to be the perfect area? And we just took all these numbers, put them together and made some prototypes of let's not make it a V-neck per se, but let's get rid of that front collar. You yeah. don't really need it. Per, you know, you don't really, if you do need it and you need wind protection, you're probably wearing a jacket anyway. Right. So let's slim that down in the front. So we have it really ending right before the next starts. Uh, and you'll see it on the website or you'll see it if you hold it up. There is definitely a different design element around the front of the throat. However, if you are riding outside for a long distance uh, and a long period of time, you do have the sun coming down on you. So we wanted to make sure that we were at least covering on the back like a normal collar would cover. So you do still have the collar in the back, it just comes down a little bit more drastically in the front so that you have a little bit more comfort and you're not constantly adjusting your zipper for that reason. Right, so the, the neck to me is interesting because when you first put it on, you're like, oh man, this is like almost Jersey Shore, you know? Yeah, right. And for those of you who don't understand that reference, go ahead and Google it. Yeah, um, <laughs> or don't, or don't. Or, or don't, or yeah, maybe it's better you don't. Yeah. It actually, when you start riding, the great thing about it is you do start to forget about it entirely because you're in the riding position. And I think one of the things about kit that's a little frightening for people who are not of that traditional body style for the cyclist, <laughs> I'm raising my hand, is you know the difference between being in the riding position and being upright. I mean, the jersey changes drastically. And one of the things, aside from the collar, that's noticeable is that when I wear a really 
tight race jersey, my mid-fluff area, my beer gut, <laughs> is all of a sudden very exposed. This doesn't happen with the distance jersey. Was that a conscious, conscious decision and why? Oh, yes. So that's actually the beauty of wearing the jersey and the bib together. With the bib, for any of you that were fans of the 1.0, that had a very low cut in the front around the, the belly. <laughs> so we did raise that up. So you do have a little extra support on the gut. <laughs> mid-fluff. The mid-fluff, <laughs> the mid-fluff, the, the, yes. Um, and then the integrity of the support in the jersey and how we've made that jersey fairly tight, I would say, but it does stretch a, a decent amount. Between that and wearing the bib short together, you kind of have this nice, I don't want to say like a Spanx effect. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing, but it's, you know, it does hold in yeah. really nice yeah. and you don't have that cut off. The other thing is a lot of jerseys that we saw, and this was another, it was a positive and a negative at the same time is I really like gripper because it keeps it in place. Yeah. I also hate gripper because now... Now, not only do I have sausage legs, yeah. uh, I have a sausage midsection. Yeah. So we tried to put the gripper just on the back and then on the front, it's just a nice glued folded over seam. So it looks really nice and clean, which is great, but you don't have any stitching and you don't have any elastic that's cutting in as mm -hmm. well. So it's a really nice smoothing effect. Again, small details. I love that you called it out because uh, <laughs> that was totally one of the things I'm like, get rid of, we need to get rid of the bellies. Like yeah, that's yeah, how do we yeah. do this, you know, in a, in a nice clean way. But that's exactly, yeah. it was very conscious. It's nice. I mean, like with the bibs too, they come up kind of high and you can tuck your, your muffin top in, you know, like exactly. I, I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> the other feature that you mentioned earlier, uh, which I, I guess I, it's something that is a problem for all cyclists and we've all encountered it, but I tend not to think about it until it is a problem, which is stowing things in my jersey pocket. Mm -hmm. And the presumption here with the distance bib is that you're going to be out all day. You're going to be, you know, or many hours, you're going to have to bring a lot of things with you, clothing and, and nutrition and whatever else you, you store in your back pockets. And what happens then is you get the small person choking you effect, you know, where the <laughs> exactly. jersey pulls up and next thing you know, you know, you got the, your collar is right here. You've done something to reinforce essentially the pocket to make it a little bit more stable. Talk exactly. Exactly. So the, the pockets were another pain point. They're either too high, too low, too small. I like two. I like three. It goes across the board. But the one thing that was a resounding similarity amongst everybody is pockets don't have enough space. And if I shove as much as I can in there, it does. It pulls the entire jersey back to where it's like choking me. Mm -hmm. So having that nice lower neckline anyway, we build a little bit of a insurance there so that doesn't happen. <laughs> but what we really did is we looked at the pocket and we created a gusset effect. And what I mean by that is think of like a paper bag folded and then unfolded, mm -hmm. how much space you can get. So it looks nice and flat until you need it. And then there's actually extra space built in, almost like a little rectangle in a way. Mm -hmm. So you're able to fit, I mean, today, I was carrying two things of nutrition, a shake dry jacket, a phone, and actually my Garmin because I didn't have a mount. <laughs> so I had all that in my back pocket and didn't even realize it. Mm -hmm. It's up high enough as well that it's not sagging down and hanging over the elastic. So it really stays in place right on the, the lower back. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it doesn't pull and it's not going to rip out of the seams either. Yeah. So. And anybody that's going to listen to this podcast is, is going to listen to all of these technical details and they're going to say, okay, this sounds great. I'm going to have to take out a second mortgage in my house and, you know, invest in this kit. It's not inexpensive, but it's not nearly as, as high end expensive as we are getting accustomed to seeing. 
how does Gore control some of those costs to yeah. offer a product that does all this and has clearly a lot of R&D going into it, yes. but hits a price point that's, I, I hate to use the word attainable, but it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's in the range of what most people uh, who are in cycling can afford. Exactly. And that, you know, it goes all the way back to the briefing process, which I can speak all day about from <laughs> briefing products for years. You go in with the right end goal and knowing how much you want to sell this for. And it was important for us to make sure that yes, it's attainable. It's it's not that it's an entry price point by any means, because we want to make sure that you're able to ride it, use it, you know, and also add multiple colors. You know, when you when you start to look at even the color depth and how we've connected the the branding together, this is something that you can build. If you want to wear it every day, we have something for every day. We really build that in there. So it needs to be affordable mm -hmm. for sure. When it comes to R&D and everything else like that, the great thing with Gore is we're doing that all the time. We're testing materials, even if we're not using them. So yeah. we're constantly learning, 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 and we're really efficient with it. So you're not going to see 19 colors of this and 17 graphics and all of that. It's how can we be efficient? We're going to share colors across. You know, there are a lot of things like that that you can do to control costing to make it worthwhile. And then the savings is passed on to the consumer or the writer. But then there's also things you don't need and we get rid of those. And we also have great suppliers that we work with that are able to work to what our target is um, so that we can stay on cost so everybody wins. Mm -hmm. We're coming toward the end of the podcast here and this isn't about the distance kit, but one of my favorite products is going away. <laughs> and you mentioned it first, so now you have to answer the question. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> the Shake Dry Jacket yes. uh, it has been immensely, immensely popular. Yes, I've been singing the praises of it for years uh, because it is, to me, the best jacket you can buy for all weather, essentially. And Gore has discontinued it. Um, why? So the enterprise itself is going through a great transition into EPE. So we currently use EPTFE. Uh, we don't need to go into all the science and details because uh, yeah. we're coming to the end of the podcast. <laughs> but as as you've seen, Vortex in general, we are evolving and, and updating our materials across the board. And you're going to see that over the next few seasons. You've already seen it in some of the other brands that we work with that have used it in some of their jackets. And so naturally, we need to get rid of our current portfolio. Shake Dry was one of them. Uh, Shake Dry, as amazing as it is, you can also imagine it is extremely difficult to make. So there was an end of life plan for that based on just the feasibility of creating the, the material itself. The good news is uh, you can buy it at gorewear.com. <laughs> Not to throw the plug in there. We do have running and cycling Shake Dry jackets still available. We've just started to scale back selling it to our partners because it is going to be obsolete. We've actually stopped making it at the factory. So it, it is one of those. The other good news is as we are transitioning to our new materials and our new life of our laminates up ahead, there is definitely a focus on how can we bring something like Shake Dry to the market again. Mm -hmm. So I guess that'll be another podcast another day right. once we get more information. I'm but gonna, the R&D is, is, yeah, <laughs> it is, it is in there. So yeah. Shake Dry is still available and around. You can find it. Hmm. It's just moving its way to its next evolution. Gotcha. Yeah. Is this the, the transition from EPTFE to EPE? Is this a, a, an environmental concern uh, or what is the purpose for the transition? Yeah, so it's a transition in, in general. It, it was just time for us to update our materials. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of other background information sure. to it. But there is, uh, yes, an environmental an environmental focus for that. And a lot of different laws that are out there with uh, 
different materials. And even if we don't fall into that category, we are still updating. Mm -hmm. So it was just time. Gotcha. Yeah. If you have a box of medium sized shake dries that you need to get rid of, <laughs> you just you just send them my way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Is there anything else that uh, people should know about the distance kit and the distance 2.0 kit, I should say, uh, and in terms of why people should spend their money here rather than somewhere else? Mm, that's a great one. I mean, you tried it. It's <laughs> for, for the price point that it is and what you get, it is fabulous. We do plan our products uh, several years out. And so I can tell you, we have some great colors coming up ahead. We're putting it on all of our athletes. They're loving it. So you're definitely going to be seeing it around. It's a franchise that we are going to build out. And I think that's important. So it's not a one and done. It's here to stay. Uh, and it'll continue to evolve as we get more feedback. We're testing usage out of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I forgot to mention we threw the white bib straps on there so that you oh, yeah. can wear it with light colored uh, pieces. So as we go into like the next spring season in a year, you're going to see a lot of pastels coming out. So really, really good stuff. And as we bring our new EPE jackets in, um, et cetera, they're going to link up really nice. So it is worth a try. I will also say specifically the colors that we chose, you can mix and match the colors or you can wear top and bottom the same and almost have like a speed suit look effect. <laughs> um, so there's there's a few different things yeah. that are a little bit elevated. And it's our new logo on there as well, the Goreware right. logo, which is elevated and super cool. So um, take a look at that. And for all of you UK folks, we actually have the branding on the right and the left side, depending on which side of the road you are on, with reflectivity. So keeping you in mind as well. Wow. That's considerate. It is considerate. <laughs> I'm a considerate global, global gal. You're very global. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Amy Evans from Gore, thank you so much for explaining the kit today. Absolutely. And uh, for all of you listening, if you have questions, you are absolutely welcome to reach out to me uh, at SlowGuyFastRide on Twitter. Uh, at slow guy on the fast ride on instagram or of course you can always reach out to at ruler magazine on all the social medias and i will happily pester amy with all of your questions uh constantly every day so <laughs> all of your questions thank you all for listening amy thanks for for taking some time today wonderful thanks I'll, for having me I'll, I'll let you go and enjoy the the beautiful scenery literally Amazing. right outside the door here. <laughs> it's fantastic <laughs> yeah. it's fantastic and for all you listening thanks for listening we'll catch you on the next episode of the ruler magazine podcast You have been listening to Rulo Conversations. Rulo Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Rulo Magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Rulo and on Instagram at Rulo Magazine or visit our website at Rulo.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.